Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Series four will be the last in this podcast, and it has been the most incredible experience to dig into so many different aspects of the plant breeding world, and literally the world. If you're listening to this, you're part of a community that spans the globe from Albania to Zambia, Adelaide, Australia, and Ames, Iowa, to Zurich in Switzerland. Dr. Narinda Dillon is the principal plant breeder for cucurbits at the World Vegetable Center, based in Bangkok, Thailand. When you think of the vegetables on your dinner plate, you may not think of loofah or bitter gourd, but these form a highly nutritious part of the diet in many regions of the world and are the focus of his work. Narinda talks about combining private and public resources to achieve optimal research outcomes and how each wave of innovation in molecular biology should be considered building on the wave before, not replacing it. Transcripts of this and all our podcasts are available at pbsinternational.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Narinda, welcome. To get us started, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm Narinda Dillon and uh, I joined the World Vegetable Centre as a principal plant breeder, cucurbits here, and I'm working for the last uh, more than 12 years. At the World Veg, I had the cucurbit breeding program, which aims to genetically improve the minor cucurbits like bitter gourd, bottle gourd, ridge gourd, sponge gourd, and tropical pumpkin. And we have a partnerships uh, with the international and national institutes and private seed sector. Okay, so that helps to set the scene. But it's always interesting to start right back at the beginning of the story and ask you um, to tell us a little bit about your early life. You know, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And how did you get into plants? Well, uh, I'm a basically village boy. I grew up on the farm of my grandfather in a small village. And I used to tend crops with the help of my father. And from there, I got interest in the agriculture. And at that time, we used to grow a lot of uh, melons also, and then other vegetables also in our backyard gardens. My father was uh, also have a background of agriculture. He was a graduate in agriculture. And then I started having a good interest in the agriculture subject at that time. And then after passing uh, my high school, then to the college and uh, I did my PhD uh, at Punjab Agriculture University, Ludhiana, specializing in plant breeding. And then I joined there as assistant professor and then risen through ranks up to professor and then 
various stints in the various international organization over the globe and then finally picked up by World Vegetable Center. And here I am. What was it that interested you about plant breeding and about plants specifically? Why did you choose that as your the direction for your career? I, I got interested in genetics and plant breeding uh, during my graduate studies. My teachers who taught me genetics and plant breeding, and uh, that was very fascinating. And uh, I thought that by genetically improving plants through this plant breeding process, I can contribute to the food security and enhance the income of smallholder farmers in developing countries. That's why I became interested in plant breeding. You've lived and worked in many different places around the world in your career. So could you tell me a bit about that, um, the kind of work that you've been involved in and where? While I was working at Punjab Agriculture University, I got opportunities to work outside India. And the first which was University of California, Davis, where I worked on the genetics of celery. And then later, I worked at Plant Breeding International, Cambridge, where my job was use of molecular markers for P-seed bone mosaic virus uh, tagging of gene of that uh, virus. And then uh, for two years, I worked at uh, Japan International Agriculture Research Centers in Japan, where my job again was the use of uh, molecular markers for conservation of the genetic diversity of uh, sweet potato. And then I worked for one year uh, at the Irita Spain as well as Inra France, where my job was on the melons and study the diversity of these melons uh, using molecular markers. Now, my experience of working at all these places helped me in various ways. For example, first it helped me how to do excellent research, objective bit research, how to do it. And then uh, exposure to the new technologies of the molecular markers at that time. And then uh, also develop the partnerships, future partnerships uh, through these contacts. And also it improved my communication skills uh, for writing publications, I, I remember very much. So this is how it benefited. And later when I pursued my career at the World Vegetable Center. This, uh, I'm using these uh, molecular marker technologies for my research here also. And uh, the other things which I learned uh, for conducting and planning and organizing research was very helpful, which I learned from these institutions. And is there a reason that you chose specifically to um, specialize in vegetable crops rather than say, cereal crops? When I entered into my graduate program at Punjab Agriculture University, my teachers told me that the vegetable breeding is a neglected area. You can do a lot here. And these are the vegetables which contribute to the nutritional security of the poor people in all the developing countries. And vegetables are a cash crops grown mainly by the smallholder farmers. So I can make a good impact. And second, the reason was there was a scope of genetic improvement in vegetables because, for example, in, in vegetables, if you see the number of breeders and so you see the number of breeders in grain crops, it's a tremendous difference. So I thought that I can contribute much more better in a significant way while working for the breeding of vegetable crops. So the scale at which grains are grown, you know, a single species wheat or a single species maize is grown at such massive scale, whereas vegetables, there's a much greater range of species, and that means each one gets less focus. Is that 
Is that right? Have I understood that correctly? Uh, yes, you are right. Vegetables are very diverse portfolio, has a very diverse portfolio and so many families to work on. And within one family, for example, in Kukubitesi, uh, there are a large number of crops, major crops, minor crops. So there's a lot of scope to, to work here and to do the work, which was not done before that. So, so that, that's the difference why, why I selected this option here. I know you've worked with some really exciting and cutting edge techniques in your time, but you're also very level-headed about new technology and its potential. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, this uh, use of molecular markers uh, is about three decades business, you know. I remember that when I was in UC Davis at that time, everybody was talking about protein markers, that the isozyme markers. They say it will revolutionize the plant breeding work because basically the molecular markers are used by the plant breeders to accelerate their breeding programs with more precision. So when I left UC Davis and uh, then when I was in a PBA Cambridge, then uh, the era of uh, restriction fragment length polymorphism, he said, these are the markers which are repeatable and which are robust and it has a future. At that time, everybody was using these markers and then it has some limitations. And then when, one day I was sitting in a cafeteria with my professor, he said, Dylan, now new, a new kind of molecular markers that is a random amplified polymorphic DNA has emerged. I think we will leave these RFLPs and indulge into it. But the later it was found that they were not repeatable across the laboratories and that's not reliable. And uh, then this uh, new kind of markers emerged such as the AFLP. And then there were simple sequence repeat markers which are repeatable. But now at the present, it is the era of uh, single nucleotide polymorphism markers. The reason is uh, that that uh, these molecular markers, uh, SNP, especially their abundance in the genomes, abundance, and they are amenable through high throughput uh, detection for, uh, formats and the platforms. So now uh, this kind of uh, molecular markers, we are using it for tagging uh, disease resistance genes in quicker baits and understanding the diversity of, for example, recently we have collaborated with KU to understand the uh, genetic diversity of our LUFA breeding lines. So this is how this technology emerged over time. And as I understand it, each of these technologies builds on the one before. So it's not that one of them is just a silver bullet. Is that your take on this? Yeah, that, that's true that. But the, it doesn't mean that the other molecular markers have become obsolete after SNP. It's a need-based. For example, I've, I, one at a time I visited the lab of one leading seed company. Uh, in, uh, and then I saw that they were they're trying to see the seed purity using isozyme markers. So the situation, it depends upon situation or situation. If these cheap, easy to handle isozyme markers give you a reliable results of the genetic purity of your material, then why to go for expensive SNPs? So it's a situation based. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn the conversation to cucurbits now. Yeah, it's my favorite. <laughs> exactly, your favorite. So could you give me an overview of the cucurbit family in general and give us sort of a foundation to start from? Uh, this cucurbit uh, uh, family is a very diverse, very diverse. And it has about 950 species, which cover about 90 genera. 
the term cucurbits basically refers to the cultivated species of the cucurbitaceae family. And uh, we here don't focus on all the cucurbits. We focus on which the actually the people term them as a minor cucurbits, but they are not minor cucurbits. If you ask uh, those about those cucurbits to any person in the developing countries, he will say, what are you talking? These are not minor. These are actually our food security. Can you give an example of a minor, minor cucurbit? People differentiate the cucurbits, uh, cultivated species, uh, as a major cucurbits or minor cucurbits. Major cucurbits means they are grown extensively globally. And the minor cucurbits means they are non-global cultivation and consumption. For example, this watermelon and melon and cucumbers, they are grown all over the world. They're the major crops. And they occupy about 80% of the cultivated area. But the minor crops, as I told you, which are not uh, grown globally and, and use consumption, not globally. So they occupy about 20% uh, of the area. And almost about more than 90% of that area is uh, in the developing countries, uh, especially in the Asia. So, so this is the difference. So on uh, the minor cucurbits, we choose to work here. At the World Vegetable Center include four species, for example, uh, bitter gourd, ridge gourd, sponge gourd, and then recently we started working on bottle gourds. And apart from that, the tropical pumpkins, not temperate pumpkins. And do they contribute um, particular aspects to the diet or particular um, nutrients to the diet? All these cucurbits have uh, good nutrition value. For example, a bitter gourd is rich in vitamin C and the micronutrients. And, and the World Vegetable Center has established through experiments done in the medical colleges in Africa and in South Asia, it has a significant value because it manages the blood glucose level. So people use it as a food medicine. And then if you talk about other minor cucurbits like a, a ridge gourd and the sponge gourd and the bottle gourd, they are also very rich in the micronutrients. For example, if you take off this case of a loofah, and, and if you take about uh, 200 gram of a loofah, cooked loofah, and that uh, I think covers up to 5 to 16% of the recommended daily intake of the micronutrients. So it's a good. And similarly, if you talk about this uh, tropical pumpkins, they're rich in beta-carotene, highly rich in beta-carotene. I mean, we, we hear a lot these days about food as medicine, don't we? And so, you know, describing about the bitter gourd being, being helpful for lowering blood glucose when diabetes is a problem all around the world, including, you know, massively in the developed world, um, it, it seems to me it's surprising that it's not getting more focus as a potential, um, as a potential contributor to, to handling that challenge. So, so do you, why do you think that is? First thing is that uh, the area under bitter gourd cultivation is gradually growing Asia. The reason is that people have got a sufficient evidence that it manages the blood glucose level. Its area is increasing. Why the seed companies are not investing in developing, let's say, the bitter gourds, which are, are rich in antidiabetic compounds. The reason is that uh, there's a no incentive for this for the seed companies it has not yet been established that if they if we develop the bitter good whether the level in the fruit fluctuates over the environments or not you also mentioned sponge gourd loofah and um and I have to admit, I know that more as something that you use when you're bathing than something that you eat. So are they are they the same thing? Are they you know tell me tell me a little bit about that and and how would you use them? 
sponge gourd is used as a scrubbing sponge, you know, all over the world. You can see, you know, all the supermarkets, you know, like that. But the story doesn't end here. <laughs> for the developing countries, for the smaller farmers and the consumers in the developing countries, it's a, it's a, it's a one of the major cucumber food, you know. And uh, this uh, loofahs, they are also very rich in micronutrients, as I explained to you earlier, that if you eat 200 gram serving of this uh, species, then it covers between five to 16% of the recommended daily dose of the micro vitamins. And these are also the small holder farmers uh, crop, you know. So it is a significant value. In fact, if you talk about Southeast Asia and Asia, in every country, this loofah is grown. In every country, the loofah is grown. <laughs> You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. We've been talking about your breeding work in cucurbits, and I know a big question in many plant breeders' minds is funding. Is there a lot of funding available for cucurbit breeding globally? And how have you navigated that issue? The major funding is for the major cucurbits, which are grown globally. For example, watermelon, melons. The huge funding is there available for research. But when we started working on this, uh, in these kind of crops here, then we realized that this has immense value in this continent, uh, South Asia. And then we looked at the work of the private seed companies then we realized that we can be different from the seed companies if we do things differently. So what are the weaknesses in the breeding program? What traits they want? And what access they have to the global germplasm? And then what are our advantages to work on that? And if we can find out that and then capitalize on that and show them through initial uh, our years of breeding, then we can attract significant funding and we are able to do that successfully now. So that feels like a good moment to transition to talking about the World Vegetable Centre. Um, could you give us an overview of the World Vegetable Centre? What kind of vegetables? Where is it based? You know, can tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, um, World Vegetable Centre is a non-profit autonomous institution of uh, International Agriculture Research Center and with headquarters in Taiwan. It was founded in 1971 and it has a five regional offices globally. For example, we have a three regional centers in Africa. One is a, a Eastern and Southern center in Arusha in Tanzania. And then one is a Western and Central Africa dry regions in Mali, Bamako. And the third one is uh, Western and Central Africa, coastal and human regions uh, in Cotonou, Benin. And in Asia, we have a two. One is in Thailand, which is East and Southeast Asia office. And one is a South Asia regional office in Hyderabad in India. So this is how we are spread globally. Then we don't work on all the crops for breeding purpose. We work, for example, on the global crops such as uh, tomato and the uh, hot pepper. And then uh, we work on traditional vegetables like amaranthus, jute mallow, of which belong to the African continent, which contribute to the food security of the uh, African people. 
And then uh, here we work on the cucurbits, basically the minor cucurbits, where we are very strong. And then uh, in uh, South Asia office, we work on the moong bean, which is also rich in iron and other nutrients. Besides this, we have a very huge a gene bank, which houses about 65,000 accessions collected from 158 countries. So we also uh, give to the farmers the improved production technology and then the post-harvest methods, which help farmers uh, to increase their productivity of vegetable crops and then also enhance their incomes, basically the incomes of the poor rural and the urban households in, in developing countries. And uh, they also provide healthier, more nutritious diets for the families and communities in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. You're based in Thailand. Is that a particularly good place to be based for um, cucurbit breeding or vegetable breeding? Yeah, uh, cucurbit breeding, yeah, because the center is dedicated to the cucurbit breeding. You are right. Because uh, initially we were, uh, this program was based in Taiwan and then the management shifted it to Thailand after three years. There were many reasons for that. One reason was that here in Thailand, the climate is such that you can grow cucurbits around the year. It means you can grow many generations, you can accelerate your breeding program. This is the one reason. Second is there's no winter here. Cucurbits are warm season crops, very fit here. No typhoons, nothing of the sort, no climatic calamities, nothing that. And second, the Bangkok is very well collected with other parts of the world. Uh, and then all the seed companies with which we are partnering with for, uh, in, for collaboration, all these seed companies have their offices in Thailand, which is a very big advantage. And also, when we moved from Taiwan to Thailand, doing research is also cheaper here because of the pay rates of the labor and other things. They are cheaper than doing over there. And uh, by moving from Taiwan to Thailand, it's a really a turning point in the cucurbit breeding program of the center. Mm. Well, and and you mentioned there that the seed companies um, have have um, presence in Thailand. Tell me a bit about how you work with the seed companies, because I understand that's fairly unusual um, in the way the the way that it's so collaborative and so um, there's so much communication. Our collaboration with the seed company is very intense, hugely intense. For example, currently our cucumber breeding program is funded by 25 seed companies. The World Vegetable Center has established uh, a consortium with the help of uh, Asia Pacific uh, Seed Alliance, APSA, we call it APSA. So it's a World Veg APSA consortium. So the seed companies first become the members of this consortium where they have a access to the limited breeding material, but they get a chance to look into details over all programs. And then the seed companies who are the members of this World Wedge APSA project, they make bilateral projects with the breeders of individual crops. For example, I told you that uh, I have a bilateral projects with about 25 seed companies. And it is not like that the seed companies just come and make a bilateral projects for that. There's a lot of work behind the scene. We hold here uh, every year the crop field is separate for bitter gold, separate for tropical pumpkin, separate for lufa. And then we display our elite lines and F1 hybrids with the specific traits. Then we invite 
most of these all companies to visit us on that field day. Then the breeders, plant pathologists, sales and marketing managers, product development managers, and many times the CEOs on the managing directors or the owners of the seed companies spend the whole day evaluating our breeding lines, hybrids. Then once they are convinced that they can make a tremendous progress by utilizing this unexploited variability, then they write us to join the project. So this is how, you know, we chosen to work on the minor cucumbers because we have a strength here. The strength was we have access to the global diversity of the cucumbers, which the individual seed companies do not have. Then we have a strong breeding facilities here. Then the, we have the lines which have specific traits, which they do not have. And I know you're keen to promote this kind of private-public breeding partnership. And in fact, you just published a paper on it. Um, tell me more about that. Because, for example, if you see the publication history of vegetable crops, you can see some kind of a collaboration with the major vegetables like tomato and chili with the private seed industry. But it never happened with the cucumbers, and especially the minor cucumbers. You can find it for the wheat, you can find for the rice, for example, this uh, iri rice uh, in, uh, this in Philippines and uh, the cement in Mexico, they are making good collaboration with the seed companies for the wheat breeding, for the rice breeding, the hybrid rice breeding. And recently, Ikri sat in Hyderabad also for their millets program. But nobody came forward for this uh, cucumbit, uh, especially minor cucumit breeding. So when we established this uh, consortium and then we uh, brought the results the company started benefiting it then we joined hands with few seed companies to write this uh, paper and it was very much appreciated globally i remember that we got some comments from the crop diversity trust also that if they can do for cucumbers why not the other crops they can do for example in iata nigeria it, they, they refer to that so the idea was that to let the more seed companies, uh, more partners in the private seed uh, sector, know our progress, that we have made a tangible progress by joining hands with the World Vegetable Center, and they are getting tremendous benefits from that collaboration. And then the more seed companies will come forward and also not only the companies, our public sector donors also read these papers. That means very good for the World Vegetable Center. They also are encouraged to support our program. For example, not from the, only from private sector we are getting funding. World Veg is getting funding from the public sector also. So what would be your tips for making a successful cucurbit breeding program? Breeding programs are successful for only few reasons. If they are very stable, and their staff is very competent, and the funding is uh, very good. And in case of cucumbers also, the funding should be very much adequate. Otherwise, you can't run a global cucumber breeding program. Plant breeding is a number game, you know. And when you cross the two different breeding lines with the different traits, and then you try to fix it, these traits in the segregating population, or you focus on large number of traits, then you need a large population. Because... As the more number of genes govern those all characters, then you need more number of 
population to find a ideal plant which has all these genes, hence expressing all these traits. But the cucurbit agronomy is such that they are viney crops. For example, in tomato, you can tomato breeder can accommodate about ninety-eight thousand plants, and chili breeder also ninety-eight thousand plants like that. Is that per hectare or per acre? Yeah, per, yeah sorry, it is a per hectare. I think uh, the the 65,000 plants, not 95, but the moonbean breeding can accommodate 95,000 plants. But what were the cucurbits? Bitter gourd, I can accommodate only 6,000 plants. In my tropical pumpkin, I can accommodate only 3,000 3, plants. And then it means large area is required. And second, the breeding procedure. For example, in the tomato or in the legumes, that's the moonbean is our flagship crop. They are the self-pollinated crops. They, but if I am to select the plant, I have to first self-pollinate the plant, all the plants, and if and then select the only desirable ones. But in case of a tomato, they don't need to do the self the plants. This automatically self-fade. They come, they, they reject and select. But the cucumber breeder has to do the additional effort for that. And we've almost run out of time, but one last question before we finish up. You've had this really diverse career working with people and crops all over the world. Um, so I'm wondering, have you any influences or mentors that you're particularly grateful for and why? I, uh, I think this is the most important question you have asked me and given me the opportunity to, you know, to pay my, you know, really thanks to the people who have shaped me as a plant breeder. So. One person I want to specifically mention is Dr. Darshan Brar. He was my teacher. He ignited the fire in me to be a good breeder and to be a good teacher of plant breeding. He was also a tremendously successful plant breeder. He retired as a head of the Division of Plant Breeding and International Rice Research Institute. This is what one person who's behind this scene, but the success you, uh, the companies or, the, or our stakeholders see today in me and my program it has a great influence of that great person. He's no more now. May he is so rest in peace. And the second, when I went to Plant Breeding International, so I worked with Professor Graham Jallis there in Cambridge. Uh, at that time, it was a private company. And uh, I think uh, it was Unilever company, right? So there, while working with Professor Graham Jallis, I learned many things from him. So I learned from him how to approach a research problem, how to choose a research problem, how to tackle the research problem, how to write a good good paper. I remember that he was at that time editor of the Plant Pathology Journal. And one day I came to him, his office, I said, I've written two papers. I want your help to teach me where I'm wrong and where I'm right, where I should put more references. He sat with me for hours together to complete and to teach me. So these two people have a very significant, uh, made a significant impact in my career. And, and I remained in touch with these two personalities for, for a long time. For example, with Dr. Darshan Brat, till the end of his life, I was in contact with him. I go to Homely. I used to meet him, discuss the ideas, exchange ideas, learn good things, new things from him. And I'm still in touch with Professor Graham Jalas. He's retired, but I'm still in touch with him. And then, I, for example, last time I was writing one uh, research proposal, I sent to him for his comments. He obliged me immediately. I remember when I left Cambridge, he came to see me off. He said, I give you one gift, parting gift. 
whenever you write some proposal or paper, don't hesitate to approach me. I will strengthen that quality of the paper. So see, these teachers make you what you are today. You know? I'm thankful to them. There's that phrase, isn't there? No man is an island. And, um, you know, I think I think no plant breeder is an island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the people that you work with and the people that you in turn influence are hugely important. Yeah, yeah. That feels like a great note to leave things on. Thank you so much for your time today. Is, I really enjoyed learning about um, all these different types of gourds and, and cucurbits. So thank you very much for your time, Dr. Narinda Dillon. Thanks, Anna, for having me. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well.